Hello there. I'm Nate in Colorado. And I'm James from London. And I'm Rochella in North Carolina. And we are Friends in Formation. This is a podcast where three very different friends take your questions about life and faith with the goal of listening, learning, and helping one another go deeper with God. Friends in Formation is produced by Renovare, a Christian ecumenical renewal effort that offers resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You know, we'd love for you to join this conversation. Please email your questions to us at friends at renovare.org. That's friends at R-E-N-O-V-A-R-E dot org. If we use your question in a future episode, we'll send you one of our special coffee mugs featuring the Friends Information logo. And we'll be so glad to hear from you. We're glad you're here today. And I want to start us off, guys, with a question that really delighted me in the way it was written. And also, what an important question it asks, okay? This question is from Doug, who says this. A.W. Tozer opens his book, the knowledge of the holy with this statement. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Dallas Willard wrote that if our view of God does not allow us to wholly give ourselves to God in love, well, then we need to rethink our theology until it does. So here's this question. What significant view of God have you wrestled with successfully? How's that for making it personal? Yeah. (laughs) The key word there is successfully, right? Right? Yeah. (laughs) All right, James, what you got? No, I was waiting for you, brother. (laughs) (laughs) I'm waiting for both of you. I got to ask the question, so I want to hear your answers. How do you define success in this? I wonder whether are you able to fully give yourself to God in love? That would be success, wouldn't it? Yeah number of things come to mind on this one for me. And as with most things that are significant and lasting, it's often slow. Mm-hmm. And we don't really notice the growth occurring. I mean, I love it when, when these things are uh, lightning flashes and suddenly there's a significant change, but I found them to be quite slow. And then it's in looking back going, oh, oh, there, there, there it is. Probably the biggest one kind of tying into this question for me is rather than a focus that God wants me and that I'm not quite sure what, that I put behavior, God's concern with my behavior in its proper place. I think God cares deeply about our behavior because it, you know, kicking our teeth in or, you know, <laughs> things that bring life, right? Like that's, that's what a loving father would, would want, behaviors that bring about life. But this idea that, that, God wants me. And in that, an invitation that the life of prayer is the most honest conversation I get to have um, because I'm loved. So that's maybe in, in, in terms of success, I think I would say that's one I've had significant growth in, and it's been an absolute delight. That sounds like success to me. Terrific. Terrific. Yeah, I definitely go along with that. I'm tempted to say, what's that quote, that um, Hemingway quote, something like, how do you go bankrupt? And the answer is, at first you go bankrupt slowly and then very quickly. 
I think my journey with the image of God has been that for the very slowly, then quickly, as my images of God have gathered weight, a bit like your know, icebergs, how they collapse. You know, they look so solid and nothing's going to change. They've been there for hundreds of years and then suddenly, boom, they collapse. And I feel that's my image of how things have changed in my own life as the absurdity of my false images of God are just gathered and have become more explicit and become more over bearing and then suddenly like the age of an iceberg they quickly collapse and i found that the turning point the hinge to use a different image it was moving away from a angry unblinking god um, staring at us to a loving god accepting us there's nothing you can do to make god love you more and there's nothing you can do to make God love you her less. But you ask about my story. I think that I remember exactly where I was when Galatians 5 verse 1 you know, hit me like a juggernaut. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And in many ways, I'd become a slave to a false image of God. I mean, those two go together. You get your image wrong, and then you get enslaved to it. So I needed to work through that. And I like the emphasis, do not let yourselves be burnt again. There's a something about proactively choosing to reconfigure your image of God. There's something that's within your power to cooperate in. Now, it's a, it's a journey. I felt there was a time in my life when I felt the Lord say, I'm going to show you how much I, I love you. Quite a statement, really. I felt that was what was happening. And it was like an avalanche. It was like that image. So that's what happened. That's the story I have. What did God do to show you he loved you? I think the thing we most want is intimacy with him. He is the ultimate. And I think it was a period of growth and intimacy, a period of unprecedented in my own journey, unprecedented intimacy with God, a freshness and a joy in that. That's much more, seems to be more significant than the externals. I really liked this question, I think, because the way he phrased it, what have you wrestled with? We talk a lot of times about how we need to get our God narratives right. And that, that's a, a term that our friend Jim Smith uses, especially, yeah. you know, getting your narrative straight. I've heard people take exception to that statement of Tozer's, that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. But I've come to believe that it's true because of my own experience of having just what I realize now were just toxic beliefs about God, not just, you know, not just slightly off, but, but beliefs that really set a pattern for my life that wasn't good. 
and those came from a variety of places. You know, some of them came from my own parents because no human parent <laughs> is perfect. And so I got some some bad ideas that I'm sure they didn't mean to give me, but they did. Um, some of it came from the church I grew up in. Some of it came from my own study and, and my own arrogance and thinking I knew the truth about God, you know, all kinds of places. And I don't, I don't mean to place blame for that, but I ended up with a picture of God less as a great boring cosmic stare, not that, but as not so much an angry God but just a very disappointed God. So I believed that God loved us all, right? You know, you can't, I don't think you can read the Bible honestly and not come away with the feeling that God loves us. But I really thought he was just deeply disappointed in me, just bothered, bothered by all the ways I screwed up, always just wishing that I could have gotten it together a little bit more. I mean, so to say that I wrestled with it is a huge understatement. I mean, that that kind of was my my working narrative that that God was really a good good God and just did put up with me. Now he did. God put up with me, but it was like, well he has to put up with me cuz he's God, but if he could get out of it, he would, you know? It was a really toxic narrative. And to say that I wrestled with it just means that I worked with that for so long and never really made much progress in my own relationship with God until I was able to dig out from under that a little bit. And wrestling is a tiring thing, (laughs) but I feel like God is up to it. God will let us wrestle with God till we till we get some of it worked out. It took me years and years and years to get out from under that a little bit of thinking that God was just disappointed in me. And several things helped me. One was, you know, becoming a mother myself. Am I ever disappointed with my children? Yes. (laughs) Do I love them any less? No, no. I can't stop loving them. Doesn't mean I don't ever question their choices, but I just can't stop loving them just because they're mine. And that's helped a little bit. But I think part of it for me has been coming to terms a little bit more with the fact that God is who God says God is. And a lot of what God reveals about himself is found in in Jesus. So when I read the Gospel of John, especially, and see how Jesus describes himself as our friend, as the resurrection and the life, as the good shepherd, as the light of the world, as the vine, I mean, all of these things, these are, these are really active sorts of words. These describe a person who is full of love and care a person who will hang in there with us. That's not the disappointed guy I had always painted God to be. I almost think the default for humans is to believe a lie about God. And if I was intent on evil and I had the power to insert thoughts in people's minds, that would that would be a pretty sharp way to destroy people's relationship, potential relationship with God. So I I think we all struggle with it. And often Often, I think it 
it says more about us than it does God. And there can be a sort of self-obsession in that, particularly if it, if it has some negative pieces to it. The question I'm always wondering and asking is, you know, that process, what is it we do or not do? How do we cooperate to truth, right? Like, I just want what's true. And I want to be open to that, even if it's absolutely wonderful, which I think it is. The analogy I would give is this picture of uh, a boat. Now, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here because I know nothing about <laughs> nautical things. But if I'm, you know, in New York and I set on a boat going east, you know, I'm going to end up somewhere in Northern Africa or something. But if I tilt it, the steering just a little, slightly south, then given enough time and space, I might just end up in South Africa. Uh, and so that's a lot how I think this, we, we certainly do want quick fixes and I'm all for them, but eh, an intentional shift. There's a helpful book i don't know whether you've come across this book atomic habits by james clear it's it's not a christian book but he emphasizes the point you've just said there about just a one percent change will start you in a different direction just a one percent you're not taking on the whole thing all in one go just a one percent just upping you know average <laughs> <laughs> of thinking differently about God, of thinking through what are the implications of, of a different view of God. And I, I think that's you know, helpful. It's a helpful book on lots of things, actually. But m we mustn't end without saying the great line that um, our friend Trevor Hudson uses, which is, if your image of God is wrong then the more religious you are, the worse things get. <laughs> that's certainly been, I mean, that's a lot of people that find that very hard to accept. Surely being re religious is just good. I mean, you know, even if your views of God, at least you're being religious. Well, his point is, if your image of God is incorrect or false, then the more committed you are to a false God, then you get yourselves into all sorts of scrapes. I know what that's like. As we're talking, something occurred to me that that I did a number of years ago that may have just started that that one percent shift. And it's just quite simply, God, what are you all about? And you know, who am I? Who are you? And then just sitting with that and not trying to force it, but just continuing to ask that prayer. And I think God is ever faithful to answer that type of a prayer for us. And let's move on to another question. This is from our dear friend, Todd. And um, it's quite a lengthy one. So apologies to Todd if I compress it in the wrong way. But he's asking, have you experienced integration over the years in your written journaling, devotional reading? At some point a few years back, I started to write in my journals and the pages and added tags and cross-references <laughs> because he wanted to follow the thread of the argument across the weeks and so on. So he went into a very good system, complex system of you know, hashtag 15, page 143A, and it all <laughs> got very well worked out. But then he found that writing in books got 
to the point where he wrote more in the edges of the book than the book actually had in it itself. <laughs> and the whole thing just began to, to get too big. And then he contrasts it with a, a retired, well, a, a friend who's retiring soon as a judge who will not write anything in any book of his this befuddles me, says Todd, probably as much as my an embellishment of every sentence causes him a consternation. I think there's a question in there about how do you organize this? How do you govern your flow of intake? And, and how do you engage with the text? And is there a way out of this? So I'm all ears to hear what the two of you have got to say on this one, please. Not sure you'd want to hear what I have to say because, oh, please. Oh, organization please. is on. one of those things that I long for. But I think when God was giving out gifts of organization, I, apparently I was hiding. <laughs> I didn't get any. But I sympathize with not just being able to lean on your own memory of things, right? Now, where did I write that? I mean, so I do have friends who have had great success with bullet journaling. You guys know about bullet journaling? And I will say that I just never have been able to follow along with that process. So I would probably be one of those (laughs) who Todd's friend, the judge, would be horrified at my books. Now, I won't say I've written more in the margins than is written in the books. But one thing that I have started doing, which is helpful, is that if something I've read triggers the memory of something else, I will write down the cross-reference. So for instance, my note in the margin will actually say, see, and I'll, I'll write the a, sometimes an abbreviated title. Like, you know, I might, I might write, see, DC, which is Divine Conspiracy, for instance, page 119. And I'll write that, yeah, because wow. that thought may not come again. But I'll, I'll take the time right then to look up the place and I'll write it down both places that this, this triggered the thought of that book and that triggered the thought of this book. And I want a record of how they were linked. That sounds just incredibly organized, Rochelle. Sorry. <laughs> Let me tell you all a story once of how I tried to be organized. I was in a group of young moms, all of whom were much more organized than I, right? And we were sharing our prayer practices. And one had developed this method of making a prayer journal. And it was so amazing. She had a tabbed dividers. And so she had prayer requests written down by dates. And then Next to each prayer request was an answer to that prayer or how she felt like progress was being made in another section of the notebook. I bought myself a notebook, y'all, and I bought myself this these sticky tabs that I could put on. And I made the most beautiful prayer journal where I was going to write down all the prayer requests and all the answers. And I spent hours making this prayer journal. It was only one problem. Hmm. I didn't leave any time to pray. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, it was a great journal, but it left out the life, you know? I mean, there, there, there was no time actually to pray because I was so concerned about being organized in my praying. So I do think that we have to be careful here that we don't get so 
interested in the system that we lose the heart of what it is that we're trying to do. Oh, I can pick up right there. Please go <laughs> ahead. I want to hear. This is a question I'm delighted to be asked because I have this very robust life of journaling that I've not really told anyone about. So, really? Oh, yeah. So here we go. But I will first say about books. I write in my books like crazy all over the place. And here's the interesting thing, often completely unrelated yeah. to what the book is about, just spurs ideas and goes different places. And I just, I, I follow that where it goes and I could care less what the book looks like. It's to be consumed, <laughs> uh, not preserved, at least for me. So I like a well-written in book that's uh, got some good coffee stains on it. Okay. In terms of journaling. So I, for, I don't know, maybe four or five years now, I keep a small notebook in my pocket and a pencil at all times. And it's uh, now I started this because of some of my memory challenges, but it's turned into just, just a wonderful help in my spiritual life. So my books, it's a combination of shopping lists and quotes from some TV show and gut-wrenching prayers. And I just let them all sit there together. And sometimes I doodle and sometimes I just write a word and sometimes I'm going, you know, very in depth, but there's something I love about the kind of ordinariness of having it kind of all there. The other thing I do with it is I don't like big journals because I don't fill them. And then I feel like I wasted time or money on it. And I also get kind of bored with them the way they look. So my little journals all have different pictures on them. And I usually pick one related to what I'm needing at that time. Uh, and they're small enough. And if I find myself uninterested in continuing to carry it around, then I just leave some pages empty and move on to the to the next one. But it's just been a wonderful practice for me. Literally fits in your pocket. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're talking about a little, like a little field. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Just a little uh, 48 page book. It's small. So I have it. I always have it with me. And it's it's become like a go-to for prayer. Oh, wait a minute. And then it just, and, and I just get these very, very honest and, and I get to ask. And, and of course, like the wonder of journaling is, is it, we learn from it. It isn't just recording things as we're listening and processing new things emerge. And then, and there's a record there. I rarely read them, Yeah, but yeah, I'm writing it down to remember it now. No, I, I get to all that. I think I go with that. I mean, I'm with you guys. I write all over books. I have to say, I'm sorry if this offends the retiring judge because um, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not. In, and as yeah, right. in, He's uh, judging you, James. <laughs> publishing. I, I love books. I love the feel, the physicality of them. But I also think they're there to serve us. So I'll write all over them. But I do think your point about I don't read them always. I don't read, you know, journals always. You don't go back and read them. I mean, some people do. And they find, I think, Todd probably has because he liked to go over them again and see how God was at work over a period of time. And I think that's a very interesting way of journaling. I'm a bit like that. We're writing over books, though. I'm not really doing it to read them back again i'm doing it more to get the material into me and i find to underline it's it's slower mm -hmm. but to underline what's the key phrase what's the key paragraph in the chapter what's the key line here and i just find it 
enchanting. And I mean, I, I can't not say this. Some of the writers of the classics are quite cautious about reading more than you should. We have this sort of idea, well, reading is good, and the more you read, the <laughs> better things are. And there's this rather odd titled book, Abandonment to Divine Providence. Sounds a long title, rather um, heavy. It's an amazing book by Jean-Pierre de Cossade. He's pretty cautious about books. He's saying, don't think by reading more books you're going to know more. He's not against reading books. He 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 wrote quite a few, <laughs> and they're brilliant. And he writes like a bird. I mean, he's fantastic. But he's saying it's a bit like, you know, put not your trust in princes, says the Old Testament. Put not your trust in the reading of more books. Now, you know, be, be careful. I'm not against it, but you can, I think you might see that he's saying, we think that by consuming more of this, it will somehow do the trick for us. And he's making a point in this book. <laughs> That's not going to make it. You've got to have airtime with God. You've got to have processing time. You've got to have, you know, intimacy. You've got to have exposure, divine exposure. And actually, Richard Foster caused quite a stir with a group of us once when we were talking about, you know, how many books should you read? And, you know, how many books are necessary? What's a core curriculum? And his point was, if you read one book and absorb it, and it enables you to have a closer encounter with God, is that more important than a pile of books where you have got more education <laughs> in that sense, but you haven't actually got you know intimacy. And to be careful of thinking that one is a substitute for the other. I say that from personal experience. One other note-taking thing I'll throw out just because Todd did seem interested in what systems had worked. It changed my life a few years ago when my husband bought me a Bible that was printed with wide margins and a little bit thicker paper. So it's a Bible that was intended for note taking. And I started making little notes in the margins of that Bible, but I stopped making notes about what the text means and started making notes about my experience with God related to the text. So, for instance, once when I was going through a really difficult personal experience, a psalm, a friend shared a psalm with me, and it felt like it saved my life during that time. So I, I wrote that down next to that psalm, you know, that this, I just wrote down the date. Another time I was in the waiting room, the surgical waiting room, in the ICU waiting room, and there, there was a passage that just came to me and meant a lot to me during that difficult time. So I penciled a note beside it. I see you waiting room, April 2008. And it takes me back to the time where God met me there with that particular passage. So sometimes I think our notes can be notes about our knowledge of 
things, and sometimes our our notes could be notes about our knowledge of God, and the latter has been really helpful to me. I have a question that comes to us from Joanne. It's quite simple. Should I wait until led to pray for someone for healing, etc., or should you jump right in and just do it? Hmm. What do you guys think? I'm on the side of um, you know, jump in. Ah, I'm going to go the other. <laughs> Good. <laughs> okay. I'm on the side of a line that was given to us some years ago of what to pray for answer, find something good and pray for it, which I, I know is a bit, you know, you can think it's a bit of a simple approach, but wait until you feel led to pray for someone for healing. I mean, I, I get that, that you want to be guided, but I think there's so many obstacles that can be there of why you shouldn't pray for someone. There's all the reasons in the world why you can't or you shouldn't or this isn't the right time or the right place. So I'm for put that to one side and if in doubt, pray, (laughs) ask. That's where I stand. Yeah, I can work with that. I mean, I'll just, I didn't mean to interrupt you with, uh, I'm reminded of a story from years ago in an event that Renovar had with the Korean folks were were there helping and I heard this from my dad where it was, you know, Hey, we're going to have a prayer time later. And would you guys, you know, be open to praying for people? And he found this out. They said, well, we'll let you know, you know, tomorrow or in the morning. And later he found out that they stayed up through the night praying about whether or not they should pray. And I just thought that was why well, I, I judged it. I thought that was silly, but I've come, <laughs> I've come to see some, some real value in that. And, and I, so I was thinking, James, in the context of a group, you know, someone's asking for prayer for healing. I make that as a point of prayer if I should or shouldn't. And there have been times where I'm really wanting to, but I feel a, uh, nope, Nate, this one's not for you. Uh, and, and, and letting that go, I make two things with it. So one, whether or not I'm going to pray, I make that a point of prayer. And then how I should pray is a point of prayer. And I'm not comfortable moving forward on either one of them without some clear direction on that. So I guess it means that, you know, times I don't pray for people, particularly for healing. So, all right, Rochelle, set us straight. (laughs) As if I could. These are not conflicting thoughts, but I, I have two very different thoughts. One is I'm so helped and comforted by the fourth chapter of Hebrews and how it explains the fact that Jesus is our high priest. And because of that, we can approach the throne of God with confidence, you know, and I, I contrast that with the way things were, you know, when we read in the, the books of the Old Testament about how it was that people would come before the mercy seat, you know, the, the purification that was required and how it was only the high priest who could go in on the certain day of the year and, and all that was required about staying ritually clean and, and all of that. You know, you, just, you didn't just run in and present yourself before the throne of God. I mean, hello. But now Jesus is our high priest, and because of Jesus, we can approach the throne 
with confidence. I mean, that's an astonishing thought to me that, that we can actually have basically an audience with the king, whether we deserve it or not. <laughs> that, that, that's not, you know, that's not in question. I mean, that, that is just mind blowing to me. I, I remember one time hearing Dallas say that you don't have to say that when you're praying, you don't have to say in Jesus name, you don't have to say it, but you do have to do it. But that's how we get to come to God is in the name of Jesus. And so we can come confidently. So that's one part of me that's like, yes, if there's something good, you can be confident that because of Jesus, you can take that to God. And yet this specific question was, should I wait till I feel led to pray for someone's healing? And I guess I, I, I resonate with both. One, healing is a good thing. And God likes good things and God is interested in our good. And yet, I think you're right, Nate, that not everything is everybody's to pray for. And it's a good idea to ask God if this is a matter that you should be working on. I do sometimes think that we are quick to pray what we think is good for someone instead of asking God what is good for for someone, you know. I also think, quite frankly, a lot of times we get our egos involved. Like, well, what if I pray for this and it doesn't happen? What is that going to say? You know, is that going to make me, make it look like I have weak faith? Is there something wrong with me? I mean, we get all jumbled up. And yet, I think maybe we can just say, God, I'm concerned. Do you think I should be praying about this? And just just ask God, why should I pray? And then listen. It's real easy for that to be a cop out. God, should I pray about this? Thank you very much. Maybe if you could send an email, you know. <laughs> but taking the time to listen for what how God might lead us. We have a friend, Juanita Rasmus, who has prayed for healing for me before and for other people as well. But a number of times in praying with Juanita, I have heard her say, God, what would you have us pray here? And then she just listens. And and it's so interesting how it can feel like such an uncomfortable silence. And you're thinking, God, please say something to her. (laughs) But she'll just listen. And then she will say, I believe I heard the Lord say. And she'll share that. That encourages me. You know, when I think about our Renovari covenant, that we're in utter dependence on Jesus as our ever-living Savior, teacher, Lord, and friend. I think he will speak to us if we if we give him a minute. So I can kind of go with both of you on this one. Are trying to listen, and we're both trying to know what to pray f- yeah. for. But I'm just so I just think the opposition wants us to not. Mm-hmm. So I I have a sort of if anybody asks me, I will pray. Mm-hmm. Now there's working out to be done in that it's got to be pastoral and sensitive and appropriate and mm-hmm. you know careful but but all of that can also make us go you know not ask not be clear not be specific i'm glad we were asked this one it's really good and i think we're cautious about inviting people to email us with their healing prayer <laughs> <laughs> You're taking it, man. Come on. Uh, that might be one right. I'm just anticipating what might happen. And maybe this is a, a good moment 
to say, I say that because we really do care about every question that we have. I mean, we read carefully, we think carefully, and we pray about mm-hmm. which are the ones. Yeah, we can't answer them all on the air for sure, but we do read them all and we care deeply about the people who sent them. Yeah, we care about our friends, don't we? And, you know, what's exciting to me is is sometimes we hear that our friends are caring for one another. We got an email just a couple of weeks ago from someone who had heard a question on air and she had faced a similar situation. And she said, would you please just pass along to him hmm. this story from me? I want him to know he's not alone. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Well. We couldn't end an episode without some tears from you, Rochelle. So thank you for. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. The things we can count on. (laughs) It's good. It's so good. There we have it. Another episode over. We're so grateful to you for joining us on this episode of Renovare's Friends in Formation. Now, you can head over to renovare.org to find out loads of other materials and helps and guides and insights. And of course, there's the regular Renovare podcast as well. We'd really like to have your questions. Please do send them to friends at renovare.org. That's friends at r-e-n-o-v-a-r-e dot org. Many thanks.